Welcome to No Time to Waste, the podcast that inspires and motivates us to maximize our moments. I'm your host, Allison Haddon. I'm battling terminal cancer, but I'm focused on living my best life as my best self every day. Join me as I chat with resilient adventurers, seekers, trailblazers, and exceptionally good humans as we explore what it means to live fully because there's no time to waste for all of us. Today's guest is hospice and palliative care doctor B.J. Miller. B.J. and I agreed that I would share the story of his near-death accident that brought him to this work, one, so that he wouldn't have to repeat it for like the millionth time, but also two, so he and I wouldn't have to waste any of our recorded conversation on it. Instead, we could just like get right into the meat. Okay, so BJ is a sophomore at Princeton. It's late one night, and he and his friends, not even drunk, were crossing the railroad tracks in town when BJ climbed on top of a two-story commuter train that was sleeping for the night and was immediately electrocuted by 11,000 volts. The damage, the loss of both his legs below the knee, and one arm, making BJ now a triple amputee, but also putting him in a unique position to relate now to his patients, because as he says, I've been in that chair. I've laid in that bed. It's a shortcut to trust. You can hear BJ tell his story in his interview with Terry Gross on NPR's Fresh Air, or in his 2017 interview with Oprah on Super Soul Sunday, or you could just Google BJ Miller and you'll find any number of interviews um, where he actually tells the story in great detail in the first person. So BJ and I talked not about his accident, but we talked about his passion for palliative care and where it came from. And we also talked about his most recent endeavor, founding virtual palliative services company, Metal Health. It's BJ Miller for No Time to Waste. How long did it take after your accident for you to be like, oh, this is my reality? Like, mm -hmm. by talking about it and living it, we're finally aligned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a great question. I. It was very, very gradual and piecemeal. You know, mm -hmm. I remember good two. I remember two years in, there was a sense of my sort of settling into it. And then again at five years in, hmm. um, where I felt kind of, okay, this is actually my life and I believe it. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I, it, it would come up by like, you know, you're walking down the street and you see, you know, you catch a reflection in a plate, a plate glass window. Mm -hmm. I would, you know, just do that. And I would just be surprised at what I saw, just, just viscerally immediately surprised. And, and that went on for years, maybe. So maybe the answer is something like five years. Um, it was, it was a long time. Okay. I'm going to do a countdown. I'm going to do a calendar. And then I'm going to call you on uh, that five-year anniversary because I'm still going to be here and right uh, let you know uh, whether or not that that exact timing mapped. Um, right but uh, you are the now founder and CEO of Metal Health. Mm -hmm. um, that's M-E-T-T-L-E. Right on. Um, I did uh, a lot of research around it because um, really it sounds like a 
a, a glorious way to sort of deliver palliative care services mm-hmm. um, kind of virtually or remotely or to people who are not necessarily um, in whatever your local area is. And right so on. I'd love to hear from you first um, before going into mental health and, and why it's different or why it's unique, but can we start first with mm-hmm. palliative care and what the heck it is? And yeah, <laughs> and because I think there's a lot of people and I've been, I've been on this palliative care kick, you could say for um, a little while now, and I've brought on my own palliative care nurse. And um, mm. I would love to have you share what you think palliative care is um, so that mm. we can help educate people. Um, Cause I don't think people know. Yeah, thank you. That's a generous question. We can't say it enough. I mean, we this field has a real branding issue. No one, no one really knows what palliative care is. We also know that when people get palliative care, they love, they tend to love it, you know, and want more of it. Um, so, which just means that a lot of people are out there suffering in ways they don't need to. There are there's help waiting for them if they kind of knew what to ask for. Mm-hmm. Um, and palliative care, the way it fits into the rest of healthcare is fascinating too. It, it, you know, you can get real, we could talk for hours about it, but I mean, there, if you go to the centers for Medicare and Medicaid or the world health organization and Google their palliative care definitions, you'd get, you know, like a couple paragraphs. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially palliative care is a medical or is a clinical subspecialty that is concerted around quality of life. And, you know, so we've got multiple disciplines disciplines swarming around the patient and their family trying to basically treat suffering instead of the disease. And that's one of the sort of mind shifts um, that to get palliative care, you kind of have to understand that. So, you know, within the context of serious or chronic illness, anytime you're suffering, you know, you should be thinking about palliative care. Mm-hmm. You know, nowhere in the definition of palliative care has, is death mentioned or time to live. Um, and that's where things get a little confusing. I think palliative care is often conflated with its older brother, older sister, hospice. So hospice came first from the UK in the 70s and in the 80s. Medicare got in the business and designated the, the Medicare hospice benefit. Mm-hmm. which is so at that point 1982 is when it become an insurance de- designation Got it. and that's when this kind of care was the stipulated for people who have six months or less to live and who are willing or must give up curative intended treatments to get hospice mm-hmm. so it is a real hospice is a real fork in the road right. um there are policy efforts to change that because it, you know, that's a really tricky choice. Those are not natural moments. There's not a natural moment at six months or less to live. Mm-hmm. And as you know, I mean, treatments are coming down the pike all the time. Mm-hmm. And why would you want to give up uh, potentially pushing back on your disease in order to get this sort of loving care? So in the 90s, palliative care, the field palliative care sort of grew up out of hospice to try to get away from those limitations. Right. So our root is, in fact, from sort of end-of-life care, but palliative care grew up to become concerted around suffering rather than death. 
Right. Um, and since then, we've been trying to grow farther and farther upstream because otherwise, why, you know, again, why, why do we wait f- to help each other out until the very, very end? It makes no, no sense. So now since 2006, the, the medical specialty is officially called hospice and palliative medicine to kind of connote the whole Megilla. So that's it. What was that now. sentence? Connote the whole <laughs> Mesmilla? The what? whole Megillah. <laughs> yeah, they were just, there were multiple words in that sentence that I literally was like, I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> Don't think you're going to be able to get away with anything, BJ. You're not. Right on. I was testing you. Well, the whole Megillah, I don't know where that could come Megillah. from. The whole Megillah. And I yeah. don't, I mean, you're not from, you're from Maryland, you know? No, no, I'm from Chicago. Are oh, you from Chicago? Know. Yeah. I don't know where that whole Megillah phrase come from, but the whole enchilada, the whole shooting match, the, 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 the whole big shooting. picture. Okay, stop, please, before we confuse <laughs> listeners even more. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 again, I've had conversations before uh, on here about palliative care, but the thing is, if you aren't, if you have never kind of walked someone through, someone that you've loved um, through dying, you know, or through serious illness, um, or tended to uh, someone who was uh, 75 plus or 80 plus years old and you're a healthy 30 something. I was like, I don't know. What is this palliative? And instantly I was like, wait, it sounds familiar. Oh my God. That's what they do for people who are dying. Right. So I went, I went there. So I know if I went there that other people either have no idea what it means or they would go to, Oh, I guess that's hospice. Right. Um, so when I was got the terminal diagnosis last August and was told I need to go back into active treatment, that I'm never coming out, that get get comfortable because at some point you're going to run out of treatment options. And basically when you do, you've got less than six months, right? Um, and they paired me up with a palliative care nurse. And although that was, I would say, jarring, um, having gone in my head to just a couple months earlier, you know, I might live out my normal lifespan when, um, when they found the brain tumor, the first brain tumor and removed it um, to then being told, okay, we're going to assign you a palliative care nurse. And then she's going through with me you know, things that I just was not ready to think about. Um, right. Not, not saying she was like, hi, nice to meet you. So like, let's talk about your advanced directive. Um, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, it wasn't a jump that was that fast. Um, but it, it was definitely a, yeah, like let's start getting you prepped. Let's start educating you on, what's available and let's get you connected with your nurse that's going to be with you as i like to say ride or die like you know she's going to be with you till the end um and uh, you know but i but i've never i've never really dug into it um and i do though desperately want to sort of get the word out because palliative care to my knowledge and based on my experience so far 
as someone who is not dead and not in my mind, not dying. Um, it's a lovely thing because basically you, as a patient go through all these different steps, talking about your physical body and your physical body's reaction to the meds. And it's all about the physical, right? Which I understand. And then you have someone come along in a medical capacity, except they're asking me questions about side effects. And they're asking me questions about um, what are what are sort of the things that are really important to me? What are the things that I love doing? Um, what are maybe some of the less physical things that I love doing? Um, what are, you know, what are the kind of morals and values do, that I have? Do I have a spiritual or religious foundation that's important to me? Um, who are the people in my life? Um, what's my partner's name? What's my dog's name? I mean, like, uh, and all I can say is like, to have gone through, you know, two and a half years of this cancer bullshit, um, it's already going to get marked as explicit. So, you know, um, and then to, to have someone so like, gently ask about the rest of me with such care. And I also think that my palliative care nurse is like literally an angel. I think anyone that works in palliative is like a special kind of human. Um, but I specifically think that my specific human as my palliative care nurse is extra special. But I just felt the only way I could see, I could say it, and I did explain this to her is that I just felt from the get-go, I just felt so seen. You know, and that is like such a wonderful, that's such a wonderful feeling as Isn't a human, it? right? Right. Yes. It's elemental. I mean, I hope all, I hope all of us find some moment in our lives before we go where actually someone actually just sees us and mm -hmm. hears us, not strategic, not strategically, mm -hmm. not trying to get some from us or not, you know, not as a means to an end, but really mm -hmm. see us without judgment. All that. I mean, it's amen, sister. I mean, I, I'm so grateful for that description because that really gets at it. Um, it is a beautiful thing when done well. And man, bless your nurse. Give her my best. Sounds like she's doing beautiful work with you. And that, I mean, another way of putting it is, you know, like you said, medicine is sort of hell bent, devoted to the physiology and the world of the body. Um, so your emotional life, your spiritual life, your social life, these pieces of our puzzle as human beings don't really have purchase in the healthcare system. There's no place to put that stuff. I mean, in your 15 or 30 minute appointments with a doctor, how that, that's just and not. And that doctor you know, is completely overrun, completely exactly. overbooked. Once people are educated to what palliative care actually is, like 95% of people want it. I mean, it, right. it's just, it's a, it is, as they say, a no-brainer. I mean, just, it, of course. Like, it's like a spiritual massage. It's like, yeah. you, you, who would say no? To, would you like a free massage once every couple of weeks? Yes. Yes, I would. That sounds wonderful. That sounds wonderful. Um, so uh, going back a bit, um, talk me through how you went from sort of and I've heard you share a little bit about it, but why palliative 
and hospice. I didn't. I hadn't. I didn't have some old burning desire to be a doctor. I wasn't. Uh, right. Medical science wasn't something that just lit me up. I was just interested in why human beings do what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it mean to be a human being? I was interested in making some sense of my own situation and using using my experiences as a patient for some something some good um, mm-hmm. rather than sort of trying to overcome them. The the old mode around disability was that, that it's something you overcome, somehow right. put it behind you or pass as somehow normal or some such junk. But I learned from my mother and others in the in the disability rights movement that no no this is you know I'm not. I'm not less than because I have fewer body parts. Um, in right. fact, you know, if anything, we who deal with illness and disability, we're, we tend to be a pretty creative lot. We mm-hmm. find workarounds. We move and we we move with our situation. So, I knew I wanted to exercise those kinds of lessons in the world. And my introduction to healthcare as a patient turned me on to both its incredible strengths. I mean, I'm. You know, it saved my life. I, you know, I would definitely would not be here without medicine. Um, and I got great care in many, many ways. But it was also very obvious the ways in which medicine was lacking, mm-hmm. all the ways we've been talking. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, you know, I'd go into healthcare and go and become a doctor. I thought it'd be an interesting thing to try to do. And I figured I'd go into rehab medicine, work with other folks who had just been become mm-hmm. disabled or whatever. It just seemed like the closest fit. Again, for me, the, the joy was using my experiences, not some burning interest in medical science. So deep in a med school, my fourth year of med school, I finally did a rotation in rehab medicine. I'd already begun to apply for residency in rehab. And I did a rotation and I just did not enjoy it at all. It was it was much too mechanical. Mm-hmm. Um, like mm-hmm. I'm interested in how human beings are changed by their experiences. I'm interested in what human beings do with with things they can't control that's when and so i realized that as i was testing my my hypothesis in rehab medicine and you know so i was going to drop out i I was going to at that point having come back from near death i realized i was not going to sort of you know sacrifice my life doing something i didn't enjoy right i was going to drop medicine and go back into the little tea business that my friend and i were starting and just happened upon an elective in hospice and palliative medicine and um, I had heard about it, but again, I had been beelining for rehab. So, but within day one, walking around with a team at the Medical College of Wisconsin, first of all, I was a nurse and a social worker and a doctor. I love the team thing. Mm-hmm. Second of all, I was meeting all these fascinating people who, and watching these incredible conversations happen, which were supposed to be depressing, but weren't. They were incredibly powerful and poignant mm-hmm. and intimate and loving. Mm-hmm. And all about things that we couldn't change, you know, it's like, how do human beings deal with that? Like the rest of medicine is going to try to fix you. And if they can't fix you, then they say things like, I'm so sorry, there's nothing more we can do. And then abandonment happens. And and I've watched, talked to so many people who are not, I've never met a patient who's angry at me because I couldn't, you know, cure cancer or something. People get angry at me because I abandoned them. Um, and that makes sense to me. So I, so for all these reasons, one day into my elective and palliative care, I knew this was, this was the place for me. And because of its embrace of the subjectivity, the subjective side of life, what turns you on, what turns you off, very individual question. I knew also that my own experiences 
would be welcome, uh, that I could work from a place in myself that wasn't fixable, that I had to accommodate and find my way nonetheless. And so I realized I would very much be able to draw from my own experiences in this work. And so off I went into palliative care. Wow. What surprised you about the, the patients that you worked with, um, mm. that were, that were close to death and then, and then, you know, ended up passing? Hmm. Well, one was just watching the the hypothesis play out of just loving, just people being nice mm. and people taking care to set a beautiful environment. Um, and then, of course, I think most anyone who's worked in hospice pretty quickly, you, you realize how alive people can be um, in this phase of their lives and how much they can drop the f- facades and the and the striving and settle into being present with whatever, however many minutes they have. And I learned a ton from the patients and the families of just how to settle into hard situations and, and, and feel okay somehow, even when your body's falling apart. So there was just light and love and laughter much of the time. And that was just, it was beautiful. And a lot of people, you'd see people coming in, who seemed really on death's door, hours away from death. And then you start listening to them and loving on them and putting some sunlight into the room and some good smells in the house. And people tended to perk up and live longer. (laughs) Uh, That hospice wasn't this death sentence. It was this life sentence in some way. It was just very beautiful. And um, a lot of people who've worked in hospice will have that experience. Um, And then now, talk me through kind of founding mental health and where the need came from and, and, and kind of where it is right now. Yeah. So, so let's see here. So in 2015 did the a Ted talk and that mm-hmm. that's when I was still at Zen Hospice project and that made its way out in the world pretty, pretty rapidly and, and turned me on to, you know, I'd always, I'd absorbed this, this sort of, idea that everyone in the field has sort of perpetuated, which was no one wants to talk about death. Everyone's in denial. Um, And your TED talk was called, I'll put it in the show notes, um, what Mm. really matters at the end of life and has just a couple people, 11 million views. So just a couple (laughs) people have have seen it. (laughs) Yeah, it's wild to think about that. Um, but yeah, watching that thing go around the world pretty quickly, you know, and I start more and more public speaking around this, trying to get people engaged. And I found that, no, I mean, sure, denial is a thing, but more to the point, there was a huge chunk of people who wanted to talk about these issues, think about these issues. It just didn't, they didn't necessarily have the language or a safe place to do it, or wasn't mm-hmm. sure if it was polite. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's, True enough, I used to tell people what I'd do at cocktail parties, and I had the same response a lot of my colleagues get, which was people would immediately change the subject or go get a drink. You know, mm-hmm. people would just find a way to. But now all of a sudden, people wanted to talk more about it. And so I started, anyway, you know, I started to say, well, gosh, maybe something's cracking open. Let's, and I have a little bit of access here. So let's lean into some public engagement mm-hmm. um, for a number of reasons, including 
healthcare's ills are increasingly um, obvious, and I don't know that healthcare is going to be able to change itself from the inside. I think if the population starts pushing on healthcare and demanding things like palliative care, then we'll get farther. So, for all sorts of reasons, it started in 2016. I left Zen Hospice to be pub- more public facing, do more talking. Worked on a book with my uh, friend Shoshana Berger. We wrote a beginner's guide to the end, a very just sort of practical book around preparing for the end of life. And so about a year and a half ago, the idea was, well, maybe we should start like a, just a repository of resources. You know, a lot of people are need, just don't have access to basic information. You know, they're Googling their diagnosis and going down rabbit holes. So we thought we'd start this library, a nonprofit library uh, in January, 2020. And we began to get that going. And then uh, COVID hit and we realized that the world wasn't necessarily didn't have an appetite for a nonprofit library. It really needed direct care. Mm-hmm. So we hit the pause on our library idea and decided to just hang our shingle with an uh, online palliative care portal. Um, mm-hmm. Called it Metal Health. Metal meaning you know you get someone's inner reserve, inner strength. That our job is to help evince that, not foist some lessons on people, but to voice. Voice, like another one, voice to voice verb. Yeah. Do you never use the word voice? Never. Voice? Now I will. Now I will. I'm going to use it all. I'm going to use it tonight. That's and I'm going to hat tip. I'm sorry. You're going to voice the whole Megillah on people. Yeah. I just want to be like, a voice, they own Megillah. Like, I want to throw an accent into it. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, no, and I was an English cool. literature major at Trinity. And, you know, I'm like, you've hit me with three vocab words that I'm like, I have no idea what that means. Contextually, I can figure it out. But wow. All right. Yeah, so sorry. Cool. Getting back to the yeah. fo- foiling. Okay, so well, metal. You were saying you were talking oh, about metal. Yes, that I yeah, that we don't like you know, if you go see an oncologist or a cardiologist, the truth is they do know more about your disease than you do. But right. you know more about you than they do. Yes. You know, and similarly with palliative care. So metal, I'm not gonna teach you a bunch of new things. More I'm here to kind of love on you and so you can relax and explore your inner world and summon your own strength and that's that's to me what the word metal kind of connotes there goes that connote word um and so anyway that's we named it metal health and the other issues that we were aware of besides covid was that palliative care was growing but in a very lumpy fashion so it's you know you won't have too much trouble finding palliative care in san francisco or new york Mm-hmm. Um, but you will struggle to find it in the upper Midwest or the Southeast. It's mm-hmm. very, um, there's certain part, parts of the country have no access to it. So here was an opportunity with telehealth coming up that, mm-hmm. you know, online portal, anyone can reach us. Mm-hmm. That was a, so access was a big thing we wanted to lean into. And then secondly, um, we also wanted to make it available without a, in, without a referral, um, so you could just reach out on your own and also your family and friends could reach out on their own. Mm-hmm. You don't need to, you know, we, in palliative care, we explicitly say the unit of care is the patient and the family. But if you're a family member, you can't schedule a palliative care visit. If your average palliative care clinic, you can attend with your patient right. friend. So anyway, we wanted to take as many of those barriers out of the way and make this work as accessible as possible. And so that's why we started mental health. Got it. 
what do you think is, I, I think, I think kind of grief and the conversation around death and dying, I think it's having a moment right now, like mm -hmm. so hot right now. Everyone wants mm -hmm. to talk about grief and, uh, and loss, especially because mm -hmm. of the pandemic. Um, what have you noticed that has shifted? Because I think most people would say that something's shifting in the conversation, the public conversation, just as it is around mental health, right? Mm -hmm. um, what have you seen? What have you noticed? Well, I can't, you tell me if I'm just wishful thinking or I'm actually seeing it. But um, one of the things I'm, I'm keen to do, and I hope I'm actually seeing happen is to sort of depathologize how we think about these things. You know, you're, you're not broken for getting sick. You're not broken for dying. You are a natural creature. This is what happens in nature. This is not, you know, we, we imply that this is that getting sick or dying is somehow like a mistake or you screwed up. Right. Um, they lost the battle, all this kind of talk, you know, right. you know, it's, it's just really, it's, it's, if you start thinking about it, it's actually kind of mean. It's this, it is, you know, so not only do I have to get sick or be depressed or die, I've got to feel like a loser on top of all that. And it's just, right. it's, it's really, it's just, so it's funny to watch human, human nature in action. And I think we do this, you know, we, the more it's like leveraging ourselves or hedging or something. If we, the more we can build something up as a problem, well, the, the more energy we can muster to fight it and somehow change it. And okay, fair enough, fine. If, if there's something about the fight, I get it. But at some point, we got to find other ways to think about these things so that we don't, um, so that we're not at odds with our reality. Um, so, um, so I hope what I'm seeing here is like I think a lot of people now understand that grief is a real thing. Um, you know, I think in the, the Western medical thing, you know, you basically had a couple of weeks to feel sad before you're expected to be, you know, back on the horse and off you go. Right. That's just ridiculous um, and unkind. Um, so I think now grief. I think more people understand that grief is an actual thing, is a necessary human process. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're a little less likely perhaps to uh, be down on ourselves for getting sick or for finding our way to death, maybe. Um, so that's my hope of what I'm seeing, that these issues are being democratized on some level. And the sting is somehow the sort of added gratuitous sting of isolating ourselves from each other in these situations is maybe lessening. Maybe we're getting a little bit more empathetic, perhaps, maybe. I don't know. What What are you feeling out there? Alex? I mean, obviously, I've only been in this situation, meaning the terminal situation for a year. In the last year, I have been kind of on a journey that began in, uh, in solitude, in mm. silence, um, because I didn't want to, I was very precious about the emotions of the people that loved me, mm -hmm. and their ability to grapple with this new terminal diagnosis and the reality that if we can't find something that works fast enough, I'm going to die. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I just for the first couple months, like I wouldn't talk about it. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't talk about it because the reaction that I would get would be kind of like, I just felt like I was like 
jabbing the people I loved with like mm-hmm. a, a dull steak knife, mm-hmm. you know, it's still cut and it hurt. And it was just mm-hmm. like, the last thing I want to do is cause my family more pain. I know mm-hmm. I didn't do, I didn't, I didn't attract this illness. I didn't, mm-hmm. this is not my fault. But the reality is, is my family and friends are going to be forced to watch me die and Mm. grieve my loss and go on without me. Right. Mm. And so I'll just not talk about it ever um, because I want to spare them the pain. And Mm. as a result, for the first couple months, I kind of walked through this alone and it Mm. was probably one of the lonelier times I've ever spent in my life. It really, it was a conversation with the author, um, uh, Nora McInerney, um, Mm. that I had in the fall who encouraged me to essentially bring my own voice to this part of my story Mm. and start approaching it and talking about it the way I talk about everything else, right. Mm -hmm. With, a dry sarcasm and wit and tenderness um, and emotion, right? Um, but but that I would not feel free or have an opportunity for connection again until I started to bring my voice to this part of my story. Mm-hmm. Right? And once I started doing that, that changed everything for me. It's in not talking about it it's mm-hmm. in not talking about death and dying and grief and trauma and tragedy that people are left in isolation. Mm-hmm. And it might not be everybody involved in the situation, but somebody's being somebody's left out mm-hmm. and somebody is not being seen or feeling seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I have an opportunity now to help people in that spot that I was in, and encourage people to confront their mortality, right? And craft a life without regrets in 24 hour Mm -hmm. increments and maximize their moments, Mm -hmm. focused on gratitude, human connection and joy, which is what no time to waste is basically all about. Then like, Mm -hmm. hell yeah, like game on. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's why I'm so passionate now about connecting with all different people who are sort of touching this conversation and figuring out how can we all work together Mm because we're all trying to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. How can we all work together to free people who are suffering, Mm -hmm. right? By basically unlocking that, that trap that is keeping their mouth shut. Mm -hmm. Right on. I mean, I think you're right on in all sorts of ways, including like, yeah, there's someone out there being left out and there's someone in probably all of us, some piece of us that's being left out. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I, so amen. And it does, I'm thrilled to hear that. Um, I'm pr- proud to be on this mission with you, my friend. You know, I, I also, I wonder how when you had that, coming out of sorts, right? You know, when you're like, you're, you were going to apply yourself to this re- part of your reality. If, yes. if the thing that had kept you from doing that was, you know, worries, concerns about friends and family, um, that dull knife you were describing, how did friends and family respond to this, this new 
approach? Um, they said, and 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 have since backed up. Mm. You know that they they can handle it. Mm-hmm. That I should not be putting anything more on myself that I already have to bear, mm-hmm. and I definitely should not be, you know, throwing the worries of them, specifically like my family, mm-hmm. in my backpack as well. Um, mm-hmm. Because they are going to be okay. We're just so grateful for the time spent together. And I feel freer now than I did a year mm-hmm. ago to be able to say, I'm just, I'm just having kind of a shitty day, you mm-hmm. know? But I, I believe, I know it's helped me feel better. And I think my parents in a, what I like to say, like a circular reference of codependency. Um, mm-hmm. I think my parents would say that they feel better because I feel better. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> you know what I mean? Right on. Yep. So. Right on. We all affect each other, especially close in families and friends. I mean, you know, the love has to go all direction. Care giving, care receiving has got to go in both directions. The last thing, and I think I kind of know the answer to it, but um, when you tell people what you do, mm-hmm. and for those that don't know what palliative care is, you kind of explain to mm-hmm. them, or hospice, mm-hmm. and they say, oh my gosh, that sounds like the saddest job. That's mm-hmm. so, you must be just like, just so worn down. Mm-hmm. How do you respond to people that that's that that associate your job or palliative with sadness mm-hmm. and, and um, morbidity and just mm-hmm. all of that. Yeah. yeah, it's a great question. I, I think, you know, it's that question is usually a tell because, I mean, if, if people, it's a little bit like this thing about being okay at this meta level. Like if, if you, if your sense of happiness and wanting to be alive and okay in this world is, means you got to keep only positive things in your purview and only that negative stuff has to, you know, you have to crowd that out. If that's your formula to to happiness, you're in trouble, sister. I mean, that that is not going to work for very long. And so, I mean, one of of my answers to your question is like, I usually kind of chuckle to myself because I know that that person is probably struggling somewhere. If they've Mm got to squint their way through life to keep out the hard stuff. Right. Um, you know, so that's why, so in, in some ways I just feel for the person asking that question. There, There is, you know, once you've kind of come to terms with the hard stuff, you know, there is, there's this playfulness that can happen and this sort of joy in the moment that can happen. Mm. And there's also its own buzz. There's also a kind of a, an elation that comes with, really facing bigger truths. Mm-hmm. Hard part is getting yourself to face and kind of turning that corner. But once you kind of do, I've often in my own life and others that I've witnessed, there's a pride, there's a kind of a, I don't know, there's some kind of uh, joy in just simply daring to look. Mm-hmm. So because I know people get sick and I know people die and I know people are lonely as hell and I know people get abandoned and I know that there's pain that we can't control and I know these things. So it helps. I get to feel better by pointing my attention to those things that otherwise get left, you know, that get abandoned. There's also just the foil of 
another million dollar word for you, foil of, you know, if you're around pain, if you're around suffering, you do have a real entree to joy. You really, that the contrast is pretty profound. And it does help me at the end of the day to come home from work and look outside my window at Mount Tam and just to see how life and death is this big swirling heap that's always moving. It's always happening, whether I see it or not. And just to touch into that that joy in the moment of being alive at all, of getting to feel anything, even pain, um, that feels really good and deep and thorough. And some, something feels right about that. Well, it sounds like meaning, right? Like mm-hmm. you have yeah. a lot of meaning in your day to day. And that meaning comes with exposure to a breadth of emotion, but you mm-hmm. are exposed to and feeling all of it, right? Right. And there's right. so many people that go through this world muted, right? Right. Um, that it does, exactly. it feels like a, a, a blessing to be able to experience all of it. Yeah. Um, last question. Hmm. And I've heard you answer this in the past, and I'm curious if it's changed, but what do you think happens after we die? Well, I love to say that I just don't know. You know, I'm a, I'm just like a I know you said agnostic. before. You've been like I love not knowing, and I was like I hate not knowing. <laughs> <laughs> right on. I mean, it's true. I mean, I do kind of get off on saying that, but I have learned to. I, I really have learned to appreciate not knowing. I mean, that's another way of saying I appreciate mystery, and mystery is a fascinating thing. And you start paying attention to human being, and you realize how much we don't know, mm. and how just outrageous it is to be. I mean, I just love this thought. I mean, I, I look up in the night sky and I realize like just you and I, right? You and I are on the same planet at the same time having a conversation. I mean, what are the fucking odds of that? I mean, yeah. that is outrageous. Yeah. And, and that's that's something I can't explain. I don't know how that happens, but here we are. And wow, you know, I just – so I I that not knowing thing to, gives me a relationship to mystery, which gives me a relationship to just amazement. You know, I think we're all aware that there are things. I think, well, I don't know. I, 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 many people are aware that there are things going on that we don't get to see. Mm-hmm. You know, there are connections between us that you can't prove. You don't get to see. But the idea that we're all made out of stardust and there's just a finite amount of stardust and all every every atom in me is going to recongeal and become something else. That kind of immortality is that's that's not theoretical. That's kind of provable, and and as is the sort of emotional residue we leave on on the planet and those around us. And so I I'm I definitely don't think death is the end. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can describe what happens. I know I can't, and I don't know what happens to me, B.J. Miller, and that consciousness of meanness. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm less interested in that. That that seems like a neurotic little loop. That is something to you know, uh, get beyond rather than get hung up on. So, yeah, I don't know if that's an answer to your question, but that's going to have to do. That's good enough. That's good enough. What'd you think of the episode? If you liked it, I would really appreciate it if you went on Apple Podcasts and left like a one sentence review. You'd be amazed at how that can help introduce the No Time to Waste podcast to new audiences. I really appreciate it.